We are um, finishing our series in Ruth today. Um, Lisa will be preaching this morning. She'll be preaching from Ruth chapter 4. Um, so I w- would invite you to stand, if you're able, to reverence the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning comes from Ruth 4, verses 9 through 17. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malhan. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. And may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, And be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, J.R. Denson is coming um, to... Provide for us a creative response to Ruth chapter 4. JR is one of our worship leaders and is a storyteller here in D.C. So, JR. I don't know what it's like to be you, but I can imagine. I haven't seen the things that you've been through, but I can imagine. I've not lost a child nor lost a spouse, but I can imagine. I've not lacked for food or land or a house, but I can imagine. My citizenship status has not been in question. When I say no to a man, I don't fear physical aggression. Never have I ever gone out to glean, nor felt by society completely unseen. Not had to move in with my mother-in-law a thousand miles away, not sat in sackcloth and ashes all night and all day. Never worked fields before the sun rose. Guardian family redeemer, man, what are those? But I can imagine. I never knew Ruth. She doesn't know me. But when the struggle is real, it's not hard to see. But God, he is good. And he's good. Not some. Not most. But total sublime. All glory. All power. Past, present, and future. And then, 
I can imagine and let the church say. Well, good morning, church. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Lisa Watson. I am one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. Um, I'm just going to look at your faces because it's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to not tip over this podium. It's tilted the wrong way. There we are. Um, Let me say a word of prayer for us before we jump into the scripture. Holy God, we stand before you this morning in awe because you are awesome. We love you. We're grateful for the opportunity to hear from your word today, to learn from the story of Ruth. And we pray that you would open our hearts and uh, give us words to hear the things that you specifically want to say to us specifically. So we thank you again. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So today we are closing up our series of Ruth. It's a short book in the Old Testament, four chapters, and Matthew and Justin have done a great job of um, unpacking and walking us through the first three chapters of this book, unpacking the truths of the power of unromantic love and fidelity and providence for God and for those, from God for those on the margins. We've been learning about that the last few weeks. Today is the last day in the series, and in addition to covering chapter four, I'm kind of going to do an overview and just recap for us the rest of the story. Um, and the message is going to explore this question today. What does it mean to live faithfully forward? Now, I know that's not a thing. Faithfully forward is not a thing. But I think <laughs> it, it is, um, it's a good way to think about what it means to live faithfully right here, right now, present in today, with a future in mind that we may never see, we may never know. I came across this photo um, this week, and I think this is such a perfect image for what I'm talking about. Uh, Liam Emery planted this forest in the Ulster Forest in Ireland. Um, He died in 2010, so this is not something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is like, really, you could go there now and see it if you had a drone. Um, He died in 2010, and he didn't actually get to see how this came out. He planted trees. He knew that some of those trees would be golden in the fall, and some of them would be green in the fall. And what he gets to see now and what we get to see, well, he doesn't get to see it, but what, he, what we get to see now is a reminder of the work that he did long before he was ever going to be able to see the fruit of his labor. I think that's what it means to live faithfully forward. We sow seeds now that we may not get to see the fruit of someday, but someday somebody's going to look and go, oh, man, yeah, I see that. Earlier this month, I went on a pilgrimage um, called the Ruby Woo Pilgrimage. You have to really try to say those words clearly, Ruby Woo. Um, and a pilgrimage is like, it's, it's like a tour, like a trip, but not. Because a pilgrimage is, is a way of journeying and learning about history in an embodied way. right? So we're embodied people, and we, go, we went to actually places um, where, where historical women Um, had lived and had done things that were really powerful. Uh, The t-shirt that we all got for the trip is this one, so I'm going to rep it. Um, It says, we are our foremother's wildest dreams. We are our foremother's wildest dreams. 
and I'll share a little bit more about the Ruby Woo pilgrimage um, over the course of the sermon, but um, on a pilgrimage, you're actually invited to be uncomfortable, to be willing to ask hard questions, to sit with complexity, no easy answers in complex places. And we cast a forward glance for those who are coming behind. There were 22 women from across the country and two from the other side of the globe um, that spent four days on a bus, learning, listening, sharing. And we made the 600-mile journey from Syracuse, New York, to Washington, D.C. We explored the stories and visited historic sites of women who paved the way for liberty and opportunities women experience today. There was an intersectionality of race and gender that we looked at. We stand on the shoulders of the women who've gone before us. Man, I can't tell you how deeply I feel that today. I called my, I called my, um, my family, my mom and my granddad this week, and I said, tell me the names of my great-great-grandmothers. Because I stand on their shoulders, even as I stand here today. <clears throat> we forge a way for the women coming behind us. I don't know yet if I'm my foremother's wildest dream, but I know that in their legacy I can live faithfully today for a future that I can scarcely imagine. The timing of Ruby Woo and the closing of this Ruth series, it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. In addition to the power of being in the spaces of people that I've read about in history, and some, unfortunately, that I have not read about in history, there was a palpable sense of the power of sisterhood as we journeyed the hundreds of miles of road and measureless depths of the heart during the course of our four days together. We've used different language to talk about it as we've listened to the story of Ruth, but there's a connection here to the power of sisterhood that we see in the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. And so I've been sitting in this story, just like you have, for the past three weeks, and I'm, st I'm struck by three things um, that Ruth's life exemplifies in her living faithfully forward. Those three things are resilience, risk-taking, and redemption. Resilience. Isabel Apawofiri, in the um, Africa Bible Commentary, opens her analysis of Ruth with this statement. The book of Ruth is more than just a good story. It also has moral teaching about God and about the resilience of women when they work in solidarity, right? So we see in chapter one, there's a famine in Bethlehem. So Elimelech and his wife and their two sons, they journey to Moab, which is not their home, and it's crossing a massive culture. It was the territory of the enemies. And then when they get to Moab, they live there for a while, and then uh, Naomi's husband dies. And sometime after that, her two sons die. The outlook at this point is terribly bleak. And I wanna just, I just wanna leave you with that for a second and then speak to something that I think is really important for us this morning. And that is, there's a, um, a condition, I think, part of our fallen condition, actually, that when we're in those hard spaces, we begin to believe the narratives and the labels that other people put on us. And I think we're gonna see that really clearly in Naomi's story. 
I'm gonna borrow uh, briefly and adapt Brian Stevenson. He says, um, each person is more than the worst thing they've ever done. And I think it's true that each one of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done, even, even more than the hardest part of our story, even more than the hardest thing that has ever happened to us. And yet what we find is that we, we wear labels that people put on us in those hardest of times. So for example, you happen to, to come across a really tough set of circumstances and you lose your housing. Hold on, check it out. You lose your housing, and so here, someone says, you know what, you're homeless. And you go, yeah, hi, my name is, I'm homeless. You have a brush with the law, and you get caught breaking the law. I'm a criminal, and you wear it. I'm a criminal, maybe even harder than criminal, felon. That's an especially difficult label to overcome in our society. You grow up in poverty, you wanna know what they say? You're at risk. So you wear the label of at risk. This one is especially difficult. Under-resourced as a label of who you are. Under-resourced? You lose your marriage, broken, unwanted. We wear these labels. You lose your job, incapable. These are the labels that our world wants to put on us and the labels that we often wear because we begin to believe the lies of an enemy of our soul who seeks to disintegrate us by telling us we're not who God says that we are. And so I think that Naomi began to believe the lies of the people. She knew she was a widow who had lost her two sons who would be the future that she had imagined for herself. The only way. She began to believe what the system said about her, that she was an outsider, that she was forgotten, that she was destitute, without worth or potential because she could no longer bear children. Maybe she believed the lie all along. Maybe it wasn't just when she lost the men in her life. Maybe she believed it all along, that her only worth was in facilitating her husband's family line, but with him gone and her sons gone, that warped and myopic identity left her with nothing but a void. She walks into Bethlehem and the women wonder about her. Could that be Naomi? You know the word Naomi means sweet and pleasant. And she says in, in chapter one, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. That's the meaning of the word Mara. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty One has brought misfortune upon me. How did she see herself? What do you think was one of the labels that she was wearing? Anyone can just like call it out. What do you hear? Someone want to give an idea? 
she felt worthless. Anybody else? Powerless, alone, rejected, forsaken. Yes. How did God see Naomi? Not those same labels. She was beloved. She was worthy. She was valuable. Did God know that she was marginalized? Did God just like maybe close his eyes and go, I love you anyway, and forget that she was marginalized? No, he knew that she was marginalized because of her status. Did he care about her poverty and her destitution? Yes, but her circumstances didn't define his perspective of her. Her circumstances didn't define his perspective of her. Naomi's not the only one who buys into bad labels. It's real for us, too. And in times where we recognize that we're wearing the labels that differ from who God says we are, we have to confess, repent, listen, and believe. Confess, repent, listen, and believe. God wants us to see ourselves the way that God sees us, not the negative definitions that are placed on us. And if we're going to be resilient, part of the journey will require, require us to reckon with the negative labels and definitions and narratives. And we can and have the opportunity to surrender those to the mercy of the truth of God. Naomi was so downtrodden, the only place she knew to direct her anger was at God. She couldn't hear him. Maybe she didn't even want to. I get that. I've been there. It's an understandable place to be, but it's not a hopeful or helpful place to remain. In contrast to Naomi, we have Ruth. She is full of resilience and determination. She also is a widow. She is a Moabite. She is the enemy. And she's a foreigner. In the, in the face of her mother-in-law, who doesn't even seem to see her or value her in chapter one, or care about her presence at this point, Ruth is undeterred. Ruth's resilience creates opportunities. In chapter two, she goes to work gleaning. She works all day in the field. She works all day in the field, picking up barley, all day long. By the time it's night, she does not go home. She goes to the threshing floor and she works threshing that barley for hours. When she's done threshing, you know what she does? She packs it up. You know what she's done, what she does when she's done packing? She puts that thing on her back, or she puts it on her head and she walks it home for herself and for her mother-in-law, day after day after day. Ruth is unflappable and she is resilient. She is committed to Naomi and she believes and works towards a future that she cannot clearly see and she has no answers for. Ruth's resilience exemplifies faithfully forward, faithfully forward living 
She was faithful in the moment, in each day, in each responsibility, and her faithful resilience created opportunities for her and Naomi that she had yet to comprehend. Where are you being asked to be resilient? God was at work with and for Ruth. God is at work with and for you. What would it look like to pray a resilient prayer? To take a resilient step? To let go of narratives and bitterness and emptiness and take hold of God's story of resilience in your life? Faithfully forward living requires resilience and Ruth lived it beautifully for us to see and for us to hold. In addition to resilience, she also exemplified faithful risk-taking. Now, we don't know anything about Ruth's story before we get to the, to the book of Ruth. We know she met her husband, who was a foreigner in Moab. They got married. They had been married for 10 years, and then he dies. But what was Ruth's life like as a child? Did she have siblings? Were the men in her family farmers or herders or tradesmen? Did she come from an upstanding family in Moab? We don't know any of this. What we do know is that by the time we meet Ruth, she's a destitute widow with probably a depressed mother-in-law. In the poker game of, of Ruth's life, her stack is really short. She's got a short stack of chips left. And here's the thing, everything was on the table and she pushed it all in. She went all in because of her love and commitment to Naomi. She left her homeland. She chose Yahweh God instead of the Moabite gods. She chose Judean customs and food and language. She risked it all culturally and spiritually. As we move into the story, she risks her reputation, her physical safety, and her emotional well-being. Everything Naomi tells her to do, she does. She was known as a woman of noble character, and when Naomi tells her to go to the threshing floor and lay at Boaz's feet, there is huge risk for Ruth. Her body could have been harmed. Her, no her noble reputation could have been damaged. She could have been rejected and suffered the emotional toll of that. And despite the great hazard to her on all levels, she responds with faithful risk-taking. Ruth never lost her noble character. She wasn't pursuing, Justin talked about this, she wasn't pursuing like a Hallmark love story. She was committed to Naomi's well-being and she took one risk after another to create a better future for herself and for Naomi. She was a faithful risk-taker. The very first stop we made on our Ruby Woo pilgrimage was Auburn, New York. I had no idea why we were going to Auburn, New York. I don't think I'd ever even heard of Auburn, New York. The name of the city didn't ring any bells, no, surf no images surfaced in my mind when I heard that. But that won't be the case any longer. <clears throat> Auburn, New York is the place where Araminta Ross, better known as Harriet Tubman, lived after she escaped slavery until she died in 1913. There's a photo um, <clears throat> of her home 
It was a profound experience to stand on the ground where she built her life and legacy after she escaped slavery. When she wasn't risking her life on the Underground Railroad to rescue slaves, she was resting here, resting her body for the next journey. Or maybe she was coming home from caring for Civil War soldiers or refugee slaves. I stood outside her home and I imagined the stories that were told within the walls. I wondered about the private prayers she prayed in the nights. I prayed on those grounds and I thanked God for Harriet. I prayed for more women and men like her who will unwaveringly take risks for the kingdom of God in pursuit of the justice of God. Author Annette Alston writes this about Harriet. The story of Harriet Tubman is a continuation and affirmation of truth found in the Holy Bible. Tubman's narrative offers religiously and historically undeniable testimony that God is ever and always on the side of the downtrodden and despised. The facts of her life show that God will continue to create liberators who will destroy the walls of any Jericho if they are faithful to him in the righteousness of his cause. Amen. Harriet and Ruth were risk takers and they lived faithfully forward. And their stories beckon us to consider following in their footsteps. So here's my question for you. Is there a part of your life where you're invited into faithful risk taking? Ruth and Harriet have significant stories. And that might feel unattainable to you. Be reminded today that small things matter. You don't have to rescue 70 people from the entrapment of slavery to be a, a faithful risk taker. Small things matter. It probably didn't feel big to Ruth to go gleaning every single day, but small things matter. So what's that thing for you? Where are you being invited into risk-taking for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God. So we've seen Ruth and her resilience and we've seen Ruth and her risk-taking. Now we get to see Ruth and redemption. And I'm gonna paraphrase the, the first, or summarize the first eight verses of the chapter. Boaz goes to the gate and the gate of the city is like where all the business stuff happens, right? Um, it's, it's, it's like the town square. So he goes to the gate and he's looking for the redeemer, uh, the kinsman who is in line to be able to buy Naomi's land. And, um, and so Boaz sees the kinsman and he calls him to sit down. Hey, you over there, come and sit down. And then he calls a bunch of elders of the city and he invites them to sit down and now, dunk, 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 we have an official business meeting called to order, all right? And Boaz makes a, a proposition. He says, you know, Naomi, our relative, you know, the widow of Elimelech, she is selling her land. And I'm bringing this to your attention in the presence of these elders so that you can buy it. If you will agree to redeem it, then do it. 
If you're not interested, let me know um, because you have the first rights to it, but I'm next in line. So what's it going to be? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Now, I'm going to stop and unpack this for just a second. Through redemption, buying back, this kinsman would gain the rights to Naomi's land. As you can imagine, that's a really good economical prospect. The redeemer would have some obligation to care for Naomi. With the acquisition of the land, under these circumstances, the redeemer would possibly be better off despite his obligations to care for her. So he gets the land, he's got a widow, he's going to have to take care of her, but, you know, he's got some land, so that's a pretty good deal. At this point, that's what he reckons. He's like, yeah, seems like a good idea. Let's jump back into the story. So he says, yes, I'll do it. And then Boaz, very cleverly, Boaz is like, and you do know about Ruth the Moabite, right? She's the widow. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And on the day you acquire the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow. And you'll be maintaining the name of her husband with the property. Whoo. Here, the anonymous redeemer is confronted by Boaz with not just a legal responsibility, he puts on a moral responsibility. Ruth could bear him a son, and thereby the land he would have acquired from Naomi would go to her son, and he would lose his investment. This is a serious case of ancient Near East peer pressure, because you know how it says in the beginning that Boaz called the elders? You know why? And he said, in the presence of these elders, um, I want you to know that, that, that Naomi's land is for sale. The presence of the elders, they all knew that that he needed to take care of this situation. And so there was some peer pressure here. If he accepts the legal right of redemption, possibly to his economic advantage, and does not also agree to the moral charge given him to care for Ruth, possibly to his economic disadvantage, he loses respect in the community. He loses respect. Care for a widow is a family duty, and a man's honor is measured by how well he lives up to it. So, he releases both the legal and moral rights and opportunities to Boaz. Verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. All right, as a 21st century woman, this whole situation (laughs) raises the hair on the back of my neck. I'm like, oh, I couldn't even write, he acquired Ruth. I can't do it. (laughs) But... Um, thankfully, we have historians and commentators who help us understand some of this and, um, and some of the really hard things like Naomi and Ruth are not present in this meeting where their lives are being bought and sold and bartered. Man, that's tough. The language of acquisition of both Land and Ruth are problematic, as I mentioned. Did Boaz see Ruth as property? 
And while I like the, dislike the language of acquisition, I don't think it's consistent with the rest of the reading of the book. He didn't see her as property. There's a bunch of technical language maneuvering around the legalities of the word redeemed. Since marriage cannot be redeemed in the legal way that land can, the word acquire is more accurate across both contexts of land and person. And so he was actually trying to fulfill like the technical legal language that had to take place in this thing and honor Ruth and acquire must have been the best word they had for that. In marrying Ruth, Boaz actually does something he's not legally bound to do, but that he has morally chosen to do. Also, Boaz doesn't sweep under the rug the fact that she was a Moabite. Now, in the other references, um, when she's called Ruth the Moabite, which happens over and over in the account, um, it points out that she's foreign. Here, what I think is happening is that he's saying, Ruth the Moabite, not sweeping under the, the rug and trying to hide the fact that she was a Moabite, but saying, she's a Moabite, the enemy, and we're together. And by him naming that, he's saying, she belongs to us now. She's part of our community. In this way, he's calling them to welcome her in the way that he has welcomed her. He's calling them to be family to her in the way that he's becoming family to the enemy foreigner widow. It was important that he called her the Moabite then. He could have said, she's my wife, now she's Israelite, let's forget the fact. But it mattered so that even that part of her identity would not be something that was a negative thing anymore. Ruth and Boaz get married. For the second time in the book of Ruth, God's intervention is mentioned. It says the Lord enabled her to conceive, and Ruth gives birth to a son. And here, this is the culmination of, of redemption in the story. Boaz has fulfilled his promise to Ruth to provide for her and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi's economic and social future are secure at this point. Ruth has brought redemption to Naomi by bringing a son into the family. Through the birth of Obed, Ruth's son, Naomi's familiar, familial future is established. Naomi also followed through with her desire to find a way for Ruth to be well provided for. So she coached her in all the customs and what is a kinsman redeemer, what is a, a redeemer guardian. She helped her understand how to navigate the relationship with Boaz. And God, working in the midst of crippling patriarchy and the structures of the time, provides for Naomi and Ruth. He has seen them since the beginning of this story. He has intervened to make it possible for the foreigner enemy widow, Ruth, to be named in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1.5, Ruth is the great-grandmother to King David. We see that at the end of the passage. The greatest of all of Israel's kings, the one who is said to be a follower after God's own heart. We see here that God worked within but subverted the patriarchal structure by including Ruth in such a prominent way in the history of his people. 
God had been seeing Naomi as well. Her story began as bitter and, and empty, and she was a woman who was blaming God for afflicting her. She was socially and economically destitute and vulnerable. By the end of the story, because of Ruth's great commitment to and love for Naomi, and because of God's care and concern for Naomi and the vulnerable, she's no longer empty and bitter. She has a daughter-in-law who is described as better than seven sons. That's a strong statement, given that sons were so highly valued. Seven is a Hebrew number of perfection and completion. So it was like saying Naomi had the most perfect, loving, valuable daughter-in-law possible. Ruth's devotion and love for Naomi was worth more than multiple children. God has also given her a grandson, which is a huge deal. The women of the community say it like this, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Here the baby becomes the guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. This is a foreshadow, right? The baby guardian redeemer. The baby redeemer. We're going to come to that part of the story here in just a few minutes. <clears throat> Naomi had renewed life. Ruth had renewal as well. God redeemed their stories through the power of their solidarity and mutuality with one another and with Boaz. Ruth's resilience, risk-taking, and role in redemption leads not only to her story being redeemed, but our story as well. As a foremother to Jesus, she points the way towards him. <clears throat> Jesus is the ultimate resilient one. Jesus took on the ruin of the cross so that we could experience the renewal of life. He overcame death and the grave so we could know that the mercies of God are new every morning. That's what helps us to be resilient. Jesus is the ultimate resilient one and he offers you the resilience that you need today. He said his strength is made perfect in your weakness. So if you're feeling weak, then lean into Jesus who will give you the resilience you need for the challenges that you're facing. Ruth is the foremother of Jesus in being a risk taker. <clears throat> he had it all. He had it all. His chips were high and his chips were wide and he says, you know what? I am all in. I'm all in for you. He pushed him to the center of the table. I'm all the way in for you, for the chance to make you whole and new, for the chance to bring healing to the nations, for the chance to give sight to the blind, both metaphorically and physically, for the chance to liberate the oppressed, to set the captives free, for the chance to include the excluded, for the chance to make an enemy a friend. Jesus said, I'm all in. And he risked everything. He set aside heaven and he gave his life just for the chance to know you and me. 
so that he could bring shalom, wholeness and flourishing and restoration and renewal, not just to humanity, but to all of creation. He risked it all. Ruth is a foremother to Jesus, who is the ultimate redeemer. He's the one who can turn lives around, amen? Who makes empty lives full, who can make bitter places sweet. He's the one who can bring peace in the midst of chaos, who brings light into dark places in our lives. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. So here's my final question for you today. What part of your story is in need of redemption? Will you bring that to Jesus today? Maybe today is the day that you push your chips all in for Jesus and decide, you know what? I'm tired of running. I'm more curious than I've ever been, so let me decide to follow Jesus with my life. Maybe today is the day that in the presence of God you acknowledge an addiction and before him you, you ask that he'll bring you liberation and renewal and restoration. Maybe your family story needs redemption. This is Thanksgiving week. Lots of us are going to be with family and maybe that's a hard place for you because of whatever has happened. This is your opportunity to open-handedly ask Jesus to bring redemption to the brokenness of that situation. What part of your story needs redemption? <clears throat> Next week we begin Advent and we begin our season of anticipation of the birth of Jesus. This seems to be the most fitting way to close the book of Ruth, to look forward because Ruth was pointing forward. Ruth, as the foremother of Jesus, was pointing forward. She identified the ways, um, what it looked like to live faithfully forward. So I think today we, um, we look ahead as well with our eyes toward Jesus and the redemption of humanity. We look forward. We're thankful. This is our week of Thanksgiving, so we're, we're thankful as well. Um, resilience and risk-taking and redemption. Living faithfully forward. Um, those are the things that we're being called to today. I'm going to um, say a word of prayer for us, and the, the worship band can come up. Um, <clears throat> Thanks, God, for how you have <coughs> shown us what it means to, to live faithfully today in light of what's up ahead. Thanks for being um, the resilient one. Thanks for the ways that you took risks to be able to set us free. Thank you for redeeming each and every story um, that was and is and is to come. So help us to hear what you're asking from us today, God. Um, help us to be willing to have honest conversations with you and with one another. And help us to surrender the things that maybe we, 
we want to hang on to you um, so that you can make them whole and new and right. Amen.